All right, welcome back, flies. We are here with Janae Wartell, and we're very excited for our interview. This is a perfect interview for um, Kenneth and I because I'm from Atlanta and he is from North Carolina, and we're going to be talking about those states a lot today. Um, we're very excited to be here. So we're actually going to mix up the format of our usual podcast. So we're going to start off with the lightning round today. So, Janae, what is your craziest phone banking experience? Oh, my gosh. I <laughs> Craziest phone banking experience. So, every now and again, you call someone who's, who's like, who's dead. And, <laughs> and so, while this is not funny, it just totally freaked me out. I called someone whose husband had died, like, a week ago. Oh no. And I was looking for him and like oh no, I like I like asked him how I like asked her I was asking all those questions and I was like oh I'm actually looking for your husband and then she's like oh my husband passed away and then I was like oh oh my gosh I'm so sorry um, <laughs> um my best wishes how are you holding up so it just like started into like us having a little like therapy session oh anyway oh no. it was very awkward um, but it happens at least once every campaign cycle because like the lists don't get cleaned very well mm-hmm. in between elections so. A lot of people fall off the rolls. Super awkward, but she was a really good sport about it. That's got to be like a worst case scenario. It was definitely a worst case scenario. Um, my second favorite story is every now and again, you catch people in the middle of like having very intense arguments or like you just catch life going on. So I'm trying to talk to this lady about whether she's supporting Barack Obama and what are the issues that are important to her. And like her kids or something were just going crazy in the background. <laughs> and so all of a sudden, she's like, yeah, sorry, like, talking through it. And then all of a sudden, she stops and goes, I'm on the phone! <laughs> and then she just, like, turns funny. back around and she's like, oh, okay, I'm back. And I'm just like, uh, hello. <laughs> um, so lots of crazy things when you call people's houses. Yeah. Happens all the time. That's hilarious. And then going off of the theme we're going to be talking about today, Georgia, what's your least favorite Atlanta stereotype? Ooh... My least favorite Atlanta stereotype is that uh, some of the stereotypes about Atlanta are, like, actually true. <laughs> What's my least favorite? Yeah, traffic. I'm like, that's fair. The traffic is fair. The fact that um, we are the best, also fair and true. <laughs> um, least favorite Atlanta stereotype. I think it's that we think we're better than, like, the rest of the South. Yeah. Um, Because, like, we just happen to have the best food, the best looking people, <laughs> like, the, like, the best weather, like, unless it's August. Yeah. Um, But, like, I think people just feel like the, the Atlanta people, like, kind of turn their nose up at the rest of the South and, like, we actually love everybody. Like, yeah. we're a proud beacon of Very awesome Southern. in the South. Um, we just happen to, like, be cool. It's not our fault. Hey, Charlotte's yeah. cool, too, though. <laughs> so, one more lightning round question, just to talk a little bit about yourself some. Yeah. This is a favorite of mine. What did you want to be when you grew up? Ooh, I wanted to be... I initially wanted to be a lawyer. Okay. And then, when I was about 15, I switched, and I wanted to be a barista and a makeup artist. Okay. Because I loved going to Starbucks, always loved going to Starbucks, <laughs> getting coffee, love coffee. I really, like, was like, my life would be so great if all I did was make coffee drinks all day and, like, make people happy, and I thought that's what I wanted to do. That's so wholesome. I love that. I know. I know. Okay, so I think that was a good lightning round. Um, let's get, jump into the interview. We have a bunch of questions for you that we're really excited about.
Um, so starting off, you were the Georgia Senate runoff director in 2021. Yeah. So you were very involved in mobilization and getting the vote out in Georgia. Obviously, we saw the culmination of that in 2020, where Georgia finally turned blue. If someone didn't know anything about the mobilization efforts in Georgia, why? how would you give a short summary of why Georgia turned blue in 2020? Yeah, short summary would be organizing. And it wasn't just organizing that we did during the runoff. It was all the organizing that folks on the ground, like groups on the ground, organizers, like grassroots people have been doing for a whole decade, right? And so what we saw in 2020 was like the culmination of a trend, right? It wasn't just lightning in a bottle. It was that a lot of people had worked hard to make Georgia competitive so that we had registered new voters, that we new voters like were brought into the process and then we had to mobilize them and get them to the polls. Um, But organizing, not just short term, but long term was how we turned the state blue. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So you talk about organizing a lot. Uh, and in 2020, that was the year that y'all broke through. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as we all know, 2020 was a little bit of an anomaly uh, yeah. in the broader scheme totally. of things. Uh, how was organizing 2020 different than it was in 2022 or in other mm-hmm. election cycles you worked in? Organizing in 2020 was, I know that there'll be so many books and studies written about organizing in 2020 because you know, nobody anticipated that that we'd be organizing a smack dab in the middle of a pandemic, right? Even when, you know, we knew that it was going to be Trump versus Biden, potentially, like, I don't think anybody really knew that we would be organizing around a pandemic. And in Georgia specifically, like, there was never really a COVID culture, like there was never really, mm-hmm. things never really closed. And so by the time we got on the ground for the runoff, and in a lot of other states, like COVID was at peak like in Georgia like it was surging and so we had to prioritize having in-person conversations with voters while also trying to be safe and keep our volunteers safe and so 2020 was a year that we had to navigate the challenges of COVID and not being spreaders of COVID as campaigners but also knowing that as much as we could get in person with people, even at a social distance, like those were still gonna be more valuable interactions than just sending people an email or a text message. So we had to think smart about how to accomplish in-person organizing goals. And a lot of campaigns across the state, the country had to figure out how to do that. Um, and some campaigns chose not to have in-person organizing programs. Um, but we knew that it was important for Georgians that we were in person and people felt the presence of the campaign. So we made a choice to like go door to door, but like use distance, step back from the door when you knocked on it or, um, use like contactless ways of tracking all the interactions we were having. Um, it really brought a lot of new technology into the fold because we were doing everything contactless, but it also like taught us how to do things like a different way, how to organize smart um and so i feel like we we learned some things um but we were also able to like be adaptable and be flexible and that's really what organizing is all about yeah awesome um we talked about the sense of superiority in atlanta and that actually ties very well into your organization efforts because it was a lot about not underestimating those more rural areas what does what did organizing look like in the suburban versus the rural areas in georgia yeah, just going back to this um, this trend, how in Georgia over the last couple of election cycles going into 2020, we saw increasing 
amount of organizing that was happening outside of just the Atlanta um, centered campaigning. So we saw that in counties like Cobb County, which is where I'm from, which is like right outside of Atlanta, we saw that there was like volunteer teams that had never really been activated. People who had never been asked to come to a field office or a campaign office before. But because we were organizing everywhere, we were able to engage new volunteers. And so I think one of the things that I saw between, you know, 2010 when I first started organizing in Georgia, 2014, 2016, 2018, and then 2020 was that we had more organizing muscle because we were building it over time. Right. So by the time Mm -hmm. 2020 came, you had people who had actually already been activated in like the 2018 C.C. Abrams campaign, et cetera. So when you have more organizing muscle, you can just reach more voters. So I feel like the the ripple effects of the campaign being felt everywhere statewide was like a reality in 2020. But we had to build it by, you know, getting kind of close, but not winning in 2018 and then not giving up and going back at it in 2020. So a lot of people argue when they're talking about why it happened in 2020, why that was the breakthrough, mm-hmm. that it was the final, finally where the demographics reached a tipping point. Mm-hmm. Would you, how much of that would you attribute to organizing mm-hmm. and how much would you attribute to demographics? That's a great question. You know, I think that it's important to recognize that there are certain atmospheric factors in campaigning that work to your advantage and sometimes work against you, right? And in Georgia, the fact that the Georgia population in its entirety was becoming much more diverse, much younger, and trending toward, frankly, Democrats, Democratic voters, um, and we were able to add more Democratic voters to the voting rolls um, over the last couple of years, I think that benefited us tremendously, right? Because um, winning is all about having the enough voters voting your way. And, you know, when we didn't have the number of registered Democrats that we did in previous election cycles, like, it's just a harder path. And so um, as Georgia trended more progressive or trended younger and trended more, um, more diverse, we saw that the Democratic voting voter registration numbers were going up. And so we were able to capitalize on that when it came to an organizing um, perspective, because we were able to say, okay, now that we have these new voters, let's mobilize them, right? Um, so demographics can be a, a very helpful additive to or good organizing strategy, but you still have to turn out those voters, right? Um, and so I know we talked about demographics not being destiny, but is, there was no inevitability that just because Georgia was becoming more diverse, that meant that Democrats were going to start winning there, right? Because there are a lot of states that trend more diverse and you know, we still don't win there. So I think Georgia was a combination of the demographics and the fact that we were becoming more progressive and more um, representative of the full population. We saw that reflected in the electorate, but we still had to organize to make sure those voters turned out. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Um, so moving on to Georgia has obviously had two runoffs in the last mm-hmm. two years. What do you think the key differences were between the most recent runoff and the one that you were more hands-on working with um, and what effect do you think having Trump on the ballot? Yeah so you know a couple of things um one just the the um the national atmosphere the national landscape was different in 2020 we were trying to beat Trump we were trying to save democracy right and so there was like a natural national urgency that folks felt um around making sure we beat Trump so you know, when we were able to turn Georgia blue and put it in the column for Biden, 
you know, we were a part of this national victory. But then I think it also showed Georgia voters that them voting and turning out made a difference and showed them like what was possible. And prior to that, I think that like 2018 left people feeling like, okay, we got we got close, but we didn't reach cross the finish line for electing a Democratic governor. I think that people saw in 2020 that, yes, if we maximize organizing and turnout for Democrats, we can win statewide. Right. So everything that people had theorized or, you know, predicted what happened in Georgia happened. Right. And so when you got to the runoffs, you saw that we were able to harness that same energy of people being super excited about Biden winning, but then also people saying, well, not only do we make history in turning Georgia blue, now we can make more history, not just locally in our state, but nationally, right? National implications. And so our battle cry or tagline was flip the Senate. And we really, people got really energized around that. Um, And so there was a lot of energy, a lot of momentum, a lot of organizing that really carried the day there. Um, And we also had two fantastic candidates in um, and Ossoff and Warnock. Um, but then when you look at the 2022 runoff, you know, there was just a, a difference in timeline. You know, we had eight weeks in the first runoff. We had four weeks in the second runoff. It's half as much time. Organizing on the condensed timeline is super difficult because you have to like, you're almost already in GOTV mode. So the timeline was different. We had one less senatorial candidate, but we also had a really weak opponent in Herschel Walker. Um, mm-hmm. And that was a gift, right? Um, arguably, he was easier to beat than Kelly Leffler, though you could argue um, you could argue me down on that point. Um, and so you saw our challenge to organize and turn out voters was a harder one. She had less time. Um, so those are probably the two biggest differences. Yeah, it's, I love talking about this because you and I had previously talked about how growing up in Georgia, we had never assumed that we would be in a state where our vote was counted. And not yeah. only is, do votes matter so much in Georgia, now it's become the national stage. Yeah. It's a really cool thing to watch. Yeah. Um, we saw in the most recent runoff, we saw hundreds of thousands of people voting for Brian Kemp and then voting for Warnock. Why do you think that is? Do you think that was more of a reflection on Stacey Abrams or on Herschel Walker? Well, as I mentioned, Herschel Walker was a really weak candidate. You know, gaffe after gaffe after gaffe after, you know, after um, blunder, you just saw him kind of put his mouth constantly, right? Whereas Warnock was an incredibly message discipline, um, you know, sitting United States senators. That matchup was like, to see them next to each other, it was like America has a clear choice. Georgia's have a clear choice here. Mm -hmm. So we were able to really create a contrast between Walker um, and Warnock. I think when it came to folks who voted for Brian Kemp um, but didn't vote for um, for Herschel Walker, I think that a lot of people really didn't trust Herschel Walker. I think a lot of people were really turned off by his record. I feel like, you know, Georgians are still very conservative in a lot of ways. And that wasn't the guy they wanted to send to Washington, right? So I think a lot of people, and there was there was a lot of talk about whether Georgians would really like split a ticket. Well, we saw that like that was the line they were drawing. They were saying like we absolutely can't send this guy to the Senate. So it's like Georgians, Georgia Republicans, like their their tolerance level for that kind of candidate. They show that they had no tolerance for that kind of candidate. And so I think that that was a gift for us that they kind of turned their backs on him um, when they had the the choice. I feel like the Brian Kemp Stacey Abrams matchup. 
you know, Stacey Abrams ran a much more, I think, unapologetically progressive campaign. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people in a year where incumbents did pretty well across the country, you know, really didn't see Brian Kemp as the bad guy in the same way that I think we probably assumed folks would. You know, he had a decent record as governor, depending on who you ask. He was also running against this backdrop, a real crazy national Republican brand. And I think he looked really sensible mm -hmm. as an alternative. So I think you saw people say, uh, I don't really love this guy, but he's not this Looney Tune caricature that the Republicans are running in these other states. Maybe he's not so bad. Right. So I feel like the, the, the national Republican brand, I think, helped Brian Kemp to look like a very sensible, sensible guy, a sensible governor, a sensible Republican. Um, and I think that worked against Stacey Abrams um, to some degree as well. You used the word Looney Tunes a second yeah. ago. How much do you think in the 2022 Senate race with Warnock and Walker, how much do you think Herschel Walker having the Looney Tune effect yeah. versus being the Trump-backed candidate uh, influence to how Georgia voters perceived him? Is it just a Her Herschel Walker thing or is there a Trump element to it? That's a great question. I think it's some of both because I honestly, I try to think about how the Walker candidacy or campaign would have fared apart from a Trump endorsement, right? We saw, we see that Trump endorsements, not just in 2022, or in 2022 were a failure, but in 2018, remember um, Brian, um, um, Donald Trump famously endorsed, um, endorsed um, the, his gubernatorial choice um, in the 2018 cycle, Brian Kemp, mm -hmm. like won, right? He, be, right? he won the primary. So I think we saw that the Trump effect waned a bit in 2022. So I think that Herschel Walker, apart from Trump, probably would have done better, all things told, right? Because we see ultimately that nationally people were rejecting the Trump branded candidates. Right. So I think he maybe would have fared slightly better, right. but I think then even on his own, he was such a laughable candidate. His credibility was just shot. He had a had a had no public service record and then had a terrible personal record, right? And so you're talking about a guy whose personal and political brand were just really deeply tarnished and then tanked with the endorsement of Trump, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think it was both effects working against him um, at the very same time. Do you have a, a favorite Herschel Walker moment from the campaign? <laughs> a favorite ad? An ad? The ads in Georgia gaffe, were particularly overwhelming. Anything. I think it had to be, there was a gaffe with him talking about pronouns where he talked about like whether like a bullet doesn't care whether you, like whether you're a she, her, or a him, it. And I was like, what is this guy talking about? Um, there were many times that he tried to spell things on the campaign trail and could not spell. Um, there were a couple of times, I think he, during one of their debates, actually like brought out a, a, a cop badge. That was mine. That was what I was um, going to say. And I was just like, who is this guy? Where did they get this man from? My sister, who is a University of Georgia grad, was like, we do not claim him. I understand that, like, he played football for Georgia. I understand Heisman Trophy winner. Great. Um, but we do not claim him. And even Barack Obama, very, um, in, only, in the way that only Barack Obama can, was on the stump for Herschel, for, um, for Warnock against Herschel Walker. And, like, literally was like, yeah, you want this guy to play pickup football in your backyard, but, like... Do you want this guy, like, representing you in the Senate? He was like, for example, like, 
I've never done brain surgery. Like, you don't want me being your brain surgeon. Like, I'm great <laughs> in a lot of things, but, like, being in, being in public office is my jam. Doing all this other stuff is not. So I think he just kind of even made laughable the idea that anybody would choose Herschel Walker over Brian, or over, Herschel Walker over Reverend Warnock. And it was kind of just, it came right down to it. It was almost a laughable choice. Um, and yet still, the Republican Republican identity in Georgia is a very strong one. Um, and they still turned out for him in numbers that I think a lot of people were still astounded on the level of support that he got. And so I think that goes to show you that while they didn't ultimately push him over the top, Republicans' commitment to their candidates still, despite that, is still strong, relatively speaking, Mm -hmm. right? And so I think that that's something that we need to always remember um, when we think about whether a candidate is viable in the state. Sure. Yeah, I was gonna say I actually went to Athens, Georgia recently, and I can say that they definitely do still claim him. Yeah, so there are they definitely do still claim him. Yes. and and I mean there was a concern at one point that people would really like continue to really celebrate his glory days as this football hero, mm-hmm. and would be like, oh, I want to vote for this guy. And so I think that when Barack Obama, you know, was like, yeah, this guy's great at football, but like, do you want him in the United yeah. States Senate? I think he was talking to those people who just like thought about him as this celebrity icon, you know, Heisman Trophy winner and might have actually turned out to vote for him because of that. Mm-hmm. I think that, that Barack Obama had to speak directly to those people to say like, hey, like this is where we got to yeah. draw the line. Football hero, great. You know, incredible football player, awesome. United States Senator now. Yeah. yeah. Um, going back to Brian Kemp for one second, uh, we talked about how the waning influence of the Trump endorsement I think it's also notable to mention that Brian Kemp has basically lost all of the Trump endorsement in 2020 with the legitimacy of the election. What effect do you think that's going to have on Georgia long term when the legitimacy of the results were called into question, especially when Georgia was like the epicenter of that scandal? Yeah, I mean, Georgia ultimately became after the 2020 um, election, like ground zero for voter suppression. Mm-hmm. Um, um, when you talk about voter suppression laws, um after that as soon as the legislature um gaveled in in 2021 they immediately began targeting the ways that black and brown voters and young voters voted in the election so i think that you know folks can say oh brian kemp a hero who you know stood up to trump but then you look at what the legislature did the republican legislature did to attack voting rights right after that slashing vote by mail windows slashing the opportunity for people to return their ballot so i think that as much as we can say okay great he stood up to to donald trump like okay but he still signed into law a voter suppression bill that claimed to address election fraud of which there was none right Mm -hmm. so it's kind of like there's some hypocrisy there right so like let's not celebrate him as this voting rights champion when in fact when he had the the pen, the governor's pen, he signed a voter suppression, a huge voter suppression law into effect. Yeah. So I think we have to we have to not have a short sighted or limited view of his of his track record going from twenty twenty elections forward. Right. Absolutely. <clears throat> so with all of that, talking about the election cycles you worked in. Oh, one other thing. Yeah. I'm gonna go back. Like, mind you, this man knew that he was also coming up for re-election in 2022. Yeah. And so, 
I think Brian Kemp was playing a bit of a long game on his own politics to understand that, like, if I'm calling the legitimate calling into question the legitimacy of the election in 2020, how's that going to impact me in 2022? Mm, right. And so imagine had he been embroiled in this big lie, then how would how would how would you have claimed to come out the victor two years later in an election? Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think he more than trying to, quote, stand up to Trump, understood that there were implications for him playing this dangerous game of the big lie and engaging in, you know, calling election a fraud. Two years later, he was going to be up for for election for reelection. And I think he understood that there were going to be there was going to be hell to pay um, if he was saying the election wasn't legitimate. So what kind of lessons do you think, because, I mean, Brian Kemp clearly learned the lesson yep. in 2020 and 2022 uh, that he has to acknowledge the outcome yep. of the election. But on the Democratic side, uh, there are lessons learned, too. Yep. There aren't the same lessons. Yep. <laughs> yeah. But what, what do you think those lessons were? I think, you know, I'm, I'm a broken record here, but I think, like, organizing matters and organizing works. You know, Republicans are always going to have, you know, their own narrative sometimes false narratives about our candidates, about elections, about other things. Um, but I think that the only way we can effectively combat that is through organizing, because right. only through organizing can you go directly to voters, make sure that they understand the truth about how to vote, when to vote, where to vote, and make sure that they are turning out in the numbers that you need. You know, the rest of those factors about who's going to tell a lie about the legitimacy of the election and what gap is Herschel Walker going to you know, to make this day or that day, those are, those aren't things we're always going to be able to, to influence, right? The amount of money that pours in from, you know, from Republican, um, you know, special interests, like, we're never going to be able to, 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 to combat that, right? Beyond organizing, right? And so I think what we remembered and were reminded of is that we can always beat Republicans with the boots on the ground game. We can always beat them if we organize. And so I think it just re-emphasized, I think it re-elevated the need to organize in every election and never assume that an election will be easily won or easily lost. Um, because we, we saw in both elections, the, the first and second runoff, that it was an essentially an election that was won on the margins, mm -hmm. right? There was no landslides either way. And so I think that reminds us to keep those tactical uh, focuses around organizing um, very much at the center of campaigns moving forward. Yeah, I agree. We've talked a lot about Georgia, but you haven't just worked in Georgia. Mm -hmm. You also worked in North Carolina and Florida and other states. What lessons do you think, like, do you think that organization that happened in Georgia is possible in these other states? Yeah, I think it is. You know, I love the South. I grew up, you know, in Georgia, but also, you know, North Carolina is like a second home to me. I went to college there. My family lives all across the South. So I have great hope and great, um, a great belief, um, an abiding belief that we can win in places that are tough or places that are seemingly, quote, red, red states. You know, Georgia was once a, quote, red state, right? Yeah. Um, and I think what we, the, the biggest lesson that we learn and can apply is that we can make inroads to these states that we're seemingly just giving over to Republicans, um, whether it's in statewide elections or in local elections, I think we often write off certain areas or we say, oh, this is not important or we can't win here or candidates can't compete here. And I think we've got to stop saying that, particularly across the South, where we've got some real history to work against. Um, we've got to 
run statewide strategies. We can't focus on metropolitan areas. In the South, you know, minority voters, young voters, they live all across these states, right? And so we can't run these big city specific campaigns. Um, we've got to have a long view of elections that includes organizing in every corner of the community. If you're in North Carolina, you're organizing in Eastern North Carolina and not just in Raleigh, right? You're, 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 you're picking off every vote in Greensboro that you can get. You're going out West and getting those votes out in Asheville. Like you're, you're competing for every vote. We're fighting for every vote and not writing off areas or zip codes and saying, oh, we can't win here. We have to compete everywhere. And yes, that takes resources, which is why democratic donors and people who are like interested in investing have to say, okay, we can invest organizers, we can build volunteer teams in these areas. And yes, we're not gonna win maybe this upcoming cycle. It might be a tough 2024 in a lot of these days. But over time, we can begin making democratic inroads, electing folks up and down the ballot um, in states that right now it doesn't look like we can compete in. You talked in your discussion group the other day uh, about how uh, we're talking about investment of resources Mm -hmm. and you were saying that the candidates at the top of the ticket are generally the ones that have the money to invest into polling uh, and advertising and a lot of times candidates at the bottom of the ticket follow their lead. Do you think that that has a negative impact necessarily on the bottom of the ticket or or how how should the bottom of the ticket respond to that? It can be because, I mean, just like, you know, Warnock couldn't escape what Joe Biden was talking about, right? Because Joe Biden is the chief Democratic messenger out there, right? Everything he says, people are going to say, well, this is what the Democrats believe. And I think in the same way, you know, someone who's running for state house or state Senate down the ballot is going to have to think about what, what is Raphael Warnock saying? Like, what is Senator Warnock saying about jobs in Georgia or the state of the, of healthcare in Georgia? Um, I think that, that where, we can be where folks at the top of the ticket can be responsible messengers is to not just focus on making the national message local, um, but also making the localized messaging in their state, statewide messaging. And by that, I mean, like with Reverend Warnock, one of the things he was really, um, he talks a lot about is, um, is Medicaid and Medicare, right? He talks about rural hospitals closing. He talks about like why that's important. Right. And people are like, well, why is this guy who's in the United States Senate talking about like rural hospital closures? Well, because people who are running in these rural legislative districts need a voice. They need someone to give voice to these issues that are important. And so I think that statewide messaging needs to be much more inclusive of the broader, broader swaths of the population so that we're not talking about urban center issues or just suburban mom issues. We need to be talking about like folks in poor rural areas. And I think that's where the Democratic Party, not to get into a different question, has gotten a little far away from um, making this their messaging very, quote, big tent, because people see, oh, being, being a Democrat is about being an Atlanta Democrat. It's not being a rural Southwest Georgia Democrat, right? And being a Democrat should be about who's fighting for you, right? At the top of the ticket, in the Senate, in the governor's mansion, et cetera. So we have to have a messaging strategy that includes every single person, every single sector and and um, facet of the population um, and centers their issues. So how do you think digital messaging allows that to happen? How do you think it influences that? I think digital messaging, you know, digital is still still a bit of a soundbite. So I think we do have to communicate in those, you know, in those digital soundbites. 
But I think we also, one of the reasons why organizing is important is because we still also have to go to town halls and go to doors in these rural communities and go to community health centers and bring the message to people. Um, there's a lot of places in the South that there's not even broadband, right? And so like people aren't, you know, on Twitter every day or people are not just like getting these mass texts, um, let alone the fact that mass texting is, is, is over, we're oversaturating the market. So I do think that, um, digital can, can and should continue to be an important medium, but I don't think it can replace person-to-person engagement and the ki- kind of um, connections that organizing affords us. Yeah, do you think that getting more onto the ground game is the most important takeaway for the future of mobilization? I think so. I mean, I think we're going to continue to... There's no, there's no stopping digital. Um, digital organizing will continue to be a preeminent force in... Um, in our organizing politics. But I do hope that, especially as the effects of the pandemic start to to wane, I do hope that in 2024, we really return, there's really a return to grassroots in a way that um, I think Democrats have seen success over the last couple of election cycles, because I think that's really what's going to win in 2024, um, despite what the political landscape may be or how crazy Trump is in that moment or how unfavorable Biden is in that moment. I still think organizing has got to be the constant um, in every campaign. Absolutely. So looking at the broad future, like past 2024, yep. it's 2030, it's 2032, oh my gosh. past that, mm-hmm. how will you know that everything you've done as an organizer, beyond just the top line, okay, we're this percent blue, how will you know that you've been successful and oh you're what people a, like you? What a, um, what a tough question. <laughs> I, I think a couple of things. So one, you know, organizing on the electoral side is all about getting good people elected, right? right? So I think anytime there's an opportunity to get good people elected and we succeed um, in putting good folks in office, I think that is an important measure of success, right? Um, I've... It, it makes my it heartens me so much to see like John Ossoff or, or, or Raphael Warnock like on the floor of the house uh, on the floor of the Senate giving like an impassioned speech or like centering issues that Georgians care about. Um, that makes me know like that is a that is success for me, right? Having somebody with such a platform that can talk about issues that impact every Georgian and really every American, right? And so I think we've got to elect more champions, not people who just love being in elected office, like people who are actually public servants. Um, I think that's a huge measure of success. I think the the other and perhaps more important measure of success is how much can we sustain people being engaged and participating in democracy? I think it's one thing to like win a runoff or win a presidential election, but you're talking about like city council elections, you're talking about um, state house, state houses and state senates, which by and large across the country, Democrats are very behind and have been behind for like a decade now, just pointing that out. Um, if we continue losing those elections and we continue, if people continue to kind of shudder after a presidential or a major election, then I think we lose opportunities to organize and keep people engaged and holding public officials accountable at the local level and getting people elected at at the 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 um, the lowest quote lowest level of the ballot, like city council, like school board, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's where the change is happening. So people recognizing their power to do those things on a consistent basis is, I think, a second 
most important measure of um, of a strong democracy. And that's all I'll know if it worked, if this experiment in organizing worked, I think. Kind of ties back to the, the famous messaging of the American experiment. Yeah. And you see it on a state-by-state cases. Yeah. Basis. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, you do. You do. And I mean, we got to get people more invested in what's happening in their backyards and in their front yards, right? Like, there's so much... People see politics and they think it's just like the nat- they see the nationalization of it mm-hmm. and they say it's it's Joe Biden and his approval ratings and this that and the other and I'm like okay but there's like a pothole like <laughs> in front of your house right you 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 run over it every single day Let's fix that road. and you yeah. have you can elect somebody who actually is elected to fix it who is actually charged with fixing that um, I think people kind of give up a lot of power locally and I think it's like really sad to me because it's like. You know your your city council person can do more for you than Joe Biden ever will, mm-hmm. right? right. Um, but people give up the power to make change, and that's how people who are anti change um, stay in power because there are far more local elected officials than there ever will be presidents, right? And so, it's reminding people of that that I think is also another function of good organizing. Yeah, that's so I think that's a great. That's point enough to preaching. End on. Yeah. Well. <laughs> Thank you for coming here. This was wonderful. With us today. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you so much. A lot of fun. It was great, great conversation. And for any Georgetown students listening, make sure to go to her remaining discussion groups uh, mm-hmm. Thursdays at 4 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. And um, thank you for having us. This was wonderful. Thank All you right. for having me. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to The Fly. You can find us on social media at The Fly Georgetown. If you enjoyed our conversation, Make sure to subscribe to The Fly and leave a five-star rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or SoundCloud. Our researchers are Kelvin Doe, Zan Hawk, Robin Wang, Kenneth Jackson, and Julian Zeitlinger. Our communications team is Andrea Smith and Austin Culpepper. Our production team is Max Paley and Will Hayes. Emeritus Managing Director is Sam Kehoe. Original theme music is composed by Aidan Ng and Bella Carlucci. And I'm Fiona Gallagher, Managing Director of the Pod. The Fly is brought to you by the Georgetown University Institute of Politics and Public Service and is made possible by the McCourt School of Public Policy. Thanks so much for listening and fly with you soon.